Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thank you for joining me. This is a tender time for me. I hope this makes sense. There have been so many pourings of love. I want to express my gratitude for those again and for all the support. Truly, I do need the support of those of you who are subscribing and buying books. That's a very big help to me right now. I'm really wanting to continue the podcast. I know that's not possible for everybody, and I'm happy to provide this podcast either way, as long as I'm able. But I do want to extend thanks for those of you who are helping in that way. It means a great deal. This one this week is on 1 Nephi, chapters 6 through 10. Again, I'll probably be a little truncated because of the other demands on my schedule this weekend with the family in town for Chris's funeral. It's been lovely to have people here. So let's talk about chapter six, just hitting a couple of high points to help in your focus this week if it's useful and celebrate these great chapters. I'm looking at verses four and five of chapter six. For the fullness of mine intent is that I may persuade men to come unto the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and be saved. I just want to pause for a second and say this, I think, is the definition of charity. Now, there are a lot of different words that we can use and phrases that we can use to talk about charity and help us extend and expand and apply and all that's great. But this, to me, is charity, that our intent is to help bring people to Christ, to love them enough that we will do whatever is in our power, in our stewardship, to invite persuade, exemplify the path to Christ. And this is Nephi. He is writing these things out of charity. The full intent is to persuade men to come into the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and be saved. That is true love. Now remember, we're in a world that wants to distort that and say you've got to make everybody feel good about themselves no matter what they're doing and tolerance is so important and that that's the true love is to tolerate everything. Not really. Not really. If we tolerate or celebrate behaviors in others that do not bring them to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so that they can be saved, then that is not complete love. Now, we're not talking about being intolerant or hateful or any of those things, which of course also would not bring people to Christ. But we have to be very careful about what true love is. Love, and I've been saying this for decades, I mean, with clients, I would talk about how we have to be careful. What kind of concept we're talking about when we use the word love? Love is maybe one of the most abused words in the dictionary because of how it is misapplied and applied you know, I love you too much to do this. I love you so much I'm going to do this or whatever. And sometimes those things are followed by really crazy kinds of exhibitions that are not really helping people be saved. You know, I love you too much to argue with you about not playing with fire or not playing in the freeway, or I love you too much. I'm not going to draw a line in the sand about addiction or try to teach or try to, you know, with our children, impose appropriate structures to help them learn to harness the natural man. I mean, you know, where is love? And if it really is in helping to persuade people to come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then we're right there with Nephi as we should be. Verse 5, wherefore the things which are pleasing unto the world I do not write. Again, look at the world we're in and the things which are pleasing to people that get lots of likes and shares or hallelujahs or whatever it is, celebrations and every kind of media in every kind of venue. 
things that are pleasing to the natural man, that just let you feel good being how you are without the effort to take it up a notch and become a better version of yourself. All of us can become that better version of ourselves through Christ if we are willing to submit ourselves to this process of growth, of repentance, of becoming. Nephi is not going to write things pleasing to the world, but these things which are pleasing unto God and unto those who are not of the world. Well, again, could this be more relevant than it is in our day, where so much that is pleasing to the world is against the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so much that is pure gospel of Jesus Christ is not pleasing to the world? So where do we stand? Where are we willing to plant our feet so that we can be charitable and loyal to the first love, which is God and his truth? which is the truth. Okay, jumping to chapter 7, verse 7. What have we got here? It came to pass in the which rebellion they were desirous to return unto the land of Jerusalem. Okay, so I just wanted to mention, as Nephi goes on here, he's grieved for the hardness of their hearts in verse 8. And then in verse 9, how is it? Well, he starts to ask these sort of rhetorical questions. Lower in verse 8, he says, you're my elder brethren, and how is it that you're so hard in your hearts and blind in your minds that you have need that I, your younger brother, should speak unto you and set an example for you? In verse 9, how is it that you have not hearkened unto the hand of the Lord, or the word of the Lord? Verse 10, how is it that you have forgotten that you have seen an angel of the Lord? Verse 11, and how is it that you have forgotten what great things the Lord hath done for us in delivering us out of the hands of Laban? Again, in verse 12, how is it that ye have forgotten that the Lord is able to do all things according to his will? Now, I, I want to take a moment here about this idea of forgetting and memory. Maybe remember that many years ago, President Kimball made a comment about what the most important word in all of Scripture might be. And his suggestion was that that word might be remember. Remember, and here you can see why. How quickly Laman and Lemuel forget the goodness of God, the miracles of God, the consistency of the gospel principles, the blessings that come when we follow in that covenant path, how quickly they forget. Now, I'm going to say a couple of things about memory. My master's thesis was on memory, repressed and recovered memory, whatever, and how unreliable it can be. Now, obviously, situations vary. I'm not trying to diss anybody's personal journey here. I do want to say that memory in and of itself is very fragile. And it is easy to forget things. It's easy to distort things. It's easy to confuse things so that even false memories can be stored in the same way that true memories are stored and they can mingle and blend. Fascinating studies that I read and reported in my master's thesis but one of them was about the Challenger explosion. Do you remember the space shuttle, the Challenger? In 1986, right within a few minutes of its launch, it exploded. And much of the world was watching. Chris and I were watching. I think we were in my parents' home in Provo visiting. And we watched it on TV and it exploded. It was tragic, the loss of all those crew members that we saw. Now, there was a university professor who was teaching a freshman class I don't remember the details, forgive me, 
But he thought this was one of those big events, like when Kennedy was shot, that happened that much of the world watches. And he wanted to record what his students said the next day that they were in class, which was very shortly after that. So within a few days of that event, he had these freshmen in his class answer, I forget, eight or nine or ten questions, but they were very concrete and specific, like, who were you with? How did you hear the news? What were you wearing? You know, things like that, very concrete. What room were you in or whatever? So then three years later, when those kids were seniors at his university and getting close to graduation, he looked up all the ones that he could find that were still on campus, and many of them still were. And he brought them in for individual interviews, and he asked them the same questions that he had asked only three years before about where they were, with whom they got the news, you know, how did they get the news, what they were wearing, all those different specific concrete details. And in his report on this little study that he did, he found that In just those three years, some of the answers had changed dramatically. They had changed into some really wild differences, like people who were at home with family were then reporting that they were in a dormitory and that they heard somebody come screaming down the hall. Anyway, lots of really wild variations that were nothing like the original information that they had recorded within just, you know, like 72 hours of the event. And he even would produce the paper and put it in front of them and say, well, do you see your handwriting there? This is what you said shortly after this occurred. And many of these kids who had changed their memories said, well, I don't know why I wrote that down because that's not what happened. So even when confronted with their own handwriting, saying something that was written in close proximity to the event They did not believe it anymore. In those short three years, they had forgotten what really happened. Now, I could tell you a million of those studies. They're really kind of extraordinary. I mean, think for a minute, though. Don't we know this? Don't we know that in family life, people have different memories? Somebody told me the other day that they were trying to write a history of their dad who had passed away years ago, and their memories all vary, all the kids' memories. And I said, you know what? Write all of them down. Just say, this is the way so-and-so remembers it. This is the way so-and-so remembers it. This is the way, you know, whatever. And just own it and kind of note the differences because we don't have the ability to run the video back right now. I think in the next life we will, but in this life we don't. So we're going to change things because memory is adaptable. In fact, one of my conclusions in my master's thesis is very relevant to this story about Layman and Lemuel. Because I found that memories tend to conform to our current conclusions. So I've seen this, again, in clinical work a lot. If somebody is feeling a positive relationship with, let's say, a parent, then they have many positive memories. But if they have a negative relationship with a parent, they have many negative memories. And I'm not talking about like, well, was the parent nice or was the parent mean? I'm talking about the same parent. But when the relationship shifts from maybe having been negative to more positive, the memories shift or vice versa. Our memories are very adaptable. So there's a joke in our family that we used to always kind of chuckle at because I shared all this with the kids and with Chris. And so we kind of made a joke that anybody who said, 
I distinctly remember kind of evoked a chuckle from all of us. And it became kind of a joke in our family. In fact, we don't really say that unless we're joking that I distinctly remember because, you know, until we run the videotapes back, who knows? <laughs> so again, I'm not saying we can't record positive things or whatever, but my point is that Lehman and Lemuel are perfect examples of this. Their memories conformed to their current conclusions. If they were mad at Nephi, everything was bad. If they felt betrayed by God, God was nothing. But if, you know, for a moment things were good, oh, yay. But the minute they were bad again, oh, everything's terrible. We can do better. We can do better. We can make an effort to key on the truth, and that will help us remember the goodness of God. But if we fluctuate or vacillate like a candle in the wind, so to speak, where the breeze can just, you know, put it out in a minute, and what do we want to remember? Do we want to remember the goodness of God? Do we want to remember his many blessings to us? You know, it's one of the reasons people make gratitude journals, and it's good to remember, to focus on that. This is why I talk about, can we feel the love of the Lord in a personal way? Can we take it in and feel it, especially at times of loss, especially at times of distress? I've told you about some of those wonderful impressions that have come to me early on that I feel were such a gift from God. But it's my job to remember them. You know how easy it can be to talk ourselves out of spiritual impressions, to let them go by the wayside, to dismiss them as like, oh, I must have made that up myself, or to just let them become foggy or decayed. I have written them down. I treasure them. And I am committed to remembering the goodness of the Lord to me personally during this time because it's real. It's real, and I know what it did for my heart and for my mind and for my journey. I want to remember always his goodness and his power. Or as Nephi says, the great things the Lord hath done for me. And that the Lord is able to do all things according to his will for me and all the children of men if I exercise faith in him. I will not forget his goodness. I will not forget his love. Join me, brothers and sisters. We can choose to remember the goodness of God. It may be the most important word in all of Scripture, as President Kimball suggested. Now, I'm going to mention one more thing, and then I'm going to, I think, put some extra content on Patreon, including a comment on the new communications director of the church that was recently announced just within the last day or so. I'm just going to add a little note about that on Patreon. I'm not trying to diss anybody here, but some interesting times that we live in, right? But I do want to say this. Nephi forgave his brothers. And we see this beautiful statement in chapter 7, verse 21. After, you know, they keep getting angry, they lay their hands on him, they basically want to kill him, and it takes an angel to come. Or sometimes it's one of the sons of Ishmael with one of the daughters of Ishmael that softens their heart. Anyway, they were sorrowful in verse 20, and they bowed down before Nephi and asked if he would forgive them. And in verse 21, it came to pass that I did frankly forgive them all that they had done. And then he exhorts them to pray unto God that God would forgive them. So that's a beautiful statement. I frankly forgave them. I frankly forgave them. So you know these things. I'm just going to quote this one again. I'm sure I've quoted it before. To forgive is to set a prisoner free 
and discover that the prisoner was you. It is so not worth carrying the burden of a grudge, of hating or even disliking somebody so profoundly or feeling angry and upset at some previous wrong. And not that that wrong may not have been absolutely real and very hurtful, but what good does it do us if we hold on to it? It keeps us in the kind of prison that we need to escape. This is a nice statement as well. Never does the human soul appear so strong as when it foregoes revenge and dares to forgive an injury. Never does the human soul appear so strong as when it foregoes revenge and dares to forgive an injury. Now, I've said this many times before. I'm going to say it again. Safety first. Safety first. God did inspire Nephi ultimately to take steps that kept him safe. You know, for a while, as they had to build the ship and so on, even then, God instituted strategies, we'll read about them in the weeks to come, where Nephi could be safe from the murderous intentions of his brother while he had to still sort of have their cooperation and get them over to the promised land where they could be a scourge to the Nephites and their descendants could continue to be a scourge to the Nephites to accomplish God's charitable purposes. So all of that is to come, but God did provide ways, even to the point of sending an angel to keep Nephi safe. Sometimes it was the persuasion of other good people. Sometimes it's zapping them with electricity. Anyway, you remember these stories because safety is important. So this is really about someone who is chronically abused. I'm talking about a battered wife, for instance, or anyone who is being chronically abused in a close relationship that we need to be non-victim Christians. God does not want us to try to forgive while we are continually being damaged by somebody who is inappropriate or sinful. In other words, we don't ask a battered wife to forgive the person who is harming her, her husband. We ask her to get safe. At least this is what we should do. We should say, like, how can we help you get safe? And we provide means or help with the means necessary so that she can get into a place where she is no longer going to get beat up. And then forgiveness can come. But to forgive while we're still being chronically hurt by someone really isn't healthy forgiveness. It's victimhood. It is assenting to our own victimization to take it again and again and again without the hope of change. Now, all these things require us being prayerful and inspired, but I do know that God does not want us to be chronically victimized. You can see here that he did provide protection and escape for Nephi in critical junctures when the relationships did need to continue, because for a while it did. They needed to get to the promised land as the entirety of Lehi's family. Okay, I'm going to say this as well as a kind of a, an invitation for next week. Lehi's dream starts, this is chapter 8, right? Let's look at verse 5. There's a man dressed in a white robe, comes and stands before Lehi. Verse 6, he spake unto me and bade me follow him. And it came to pass that as I followed him, in verse 7, I beheld myself that I was in a dark and dreary waste. You know, I don't know how many times I read through this before I noticed that. <laughs> I mean, the years of reading through the Book of Mormon that I didn't really key on that. That as Lehi follows the person that he is bidden to follow, he's in a dark and dreary waste. And look at verse 8. 
and after I had traveled for the space of many hours in darkness. Again, I don't think I really keyed on that for a very long time. Now, it's been a while now since I've noticed this, but it wasn't right away. Many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have mercy on me, according to the multitude of his tender mercies. And it's after he prays, verse 9, he beholds a large and spacious field, and beholds a tree, and here's where Lehi's dream starts to take shape in the familiar way that we have read many times. So I just want to point that out, that nothing comes automatically to God's people. He wants us to ask for relief. He wants us to plead for understanding. Sometimes we just want it to kind of show up on the porch or (laughs) come in on the barge or come to us easily. And the Lord does want us to ask. We do see through a glass darkly. We are under the power of a very serious veil, brothers and sisters, and we don't see all that God sees. But if we ask, he reveals marvelous things to us. The other thing I want you to notice in this next week as you read Nephi's vision is the differences. Now, you know, we've done this a million times, probably on Sunday school lesson boards or on our own notes, writing down what Lehi saw and then writing down Nephi, who has a much clearer interpretation. But I want you to just think again about how significant it is to notice that while Nephi heard his father's dream and believed it, bless him for his faith and belief in his prophet father, it wasn't until he sought personal revelation himself, not because he doubted his father's dream, but because he wanted to know of himself, that what comes to him has so much greater richness of personal understanding and interpretation and detail. This is why God keeps telling us that we need to know these things for ourselves. And as Heber C. Kimball said so many years ago, the day will come when no man can stand on borrowed light. Seek, knock, pray. God has promised to open things up to us if we follow that path in faith, believing that we can receive. One of the great messages of the Book of Mormon, of course, even in its closing pages, we know the mockery of the great and spacious building. It's coming every day to us now. This book is written for our time. Coarsely High brings in this first great prophecy of the Messiah in chapter 10, who is to come. And Nephi wants to know more about those things, as should we. Brothers and sisters, thank you for joining me today. Let's love this year with the Book of Mormon. It's such a gift to us. I hope that we'll learn new, wonderful understandings and depths to this sacred text that testifies of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our Redeemer. Thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.